I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. My guest today is Dean Buonomano, a neuroscientist at UCLA since 1998 and a leading researcher of the neuroscience of time. His first book, Brain Bugs, How the Brain's Flaws Shape Our Lives, was a Wall Street Journal bestseller. Buonomano is a, the rare combination of cutting-edge researcher and talented and engaging communicator of science to the general public. He has been interviewed about his research on timing and neural computation for Newsweek, Discover Magazine, Scientific American, The New Yorker, and on NPR's Fresh Air. His most recent book, Your Brain is a Time Machine, The Neuroscience and Physics of Time, was published in 2017 and is the subject of today's interview. So, Dean, welcome to Delving In. Thank you very much, Stuart. It's a pleasure to be here. So you credit your first interest in how the brain works to observing your younger sister, who I think is eight or nine years younger than you, right? That's right. Nine years younger. Yeah. So I think that really was maybe the first proof of your uh, precociousness <laughs> as a thinker, because I think the average uh, big brother, even if a nine-year difference, doesn't sit there observing and say, gosh, I wonder how my sister's mind works. <laughs> Well, the, the two aren't incompatible. You can be both a mean big brother and not very <laughs> kind to your sister and fascinated by. So I had um, one of my early stories with my sisters. Uh, we grew up in Brazil and I would always call her boba, which means dummy in um, Portuguese. And then when she was four or five, uh, a friend stopped by or was calling me a name or said something like Boba. And she came running out because she thought somebody called her name. And at that point, I remember it really dawning on me that, okay, first I should probably stop calling her that. And number two is how would she know otherwise that we make sense out of the world by associations, by the things we hear? and whether people are making eye contact. So everything we learn, at least at that early stage, is by associations. You, you learn that a cat is a cat by your mother pointing at the little furry four-legged animal and saying the word cat. So that did really make me think how fascinating it was that the brain managed to make sense out of this blooming, buzzing confusion of, of sensory chaos that the world is. And, and you realize that your teasing was having a, a neurological impact. <laughs> I did. She's okay, by the way. She's fine. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. So what about your first interest in the topic of time, uh, both from the perspective of neurology and physics? And that was an unusual thing about your book that it tries to tackle, well, it doesn't just try, it does tackle both topics and the intersection between the two. Yeah, I don't really know when my interest in the topic of time arose, but I do think back, my grandfather was a very kind and intelligent man, and he gave me this inappropriately expensive Swiss watch, Swiss chronometer, um, those old analog beautiful um, stopwatches when I was probably nine or 10, and which you really shouldn't give to a nine or 10 year old. But from that point on, I studied the reaction time, how long it would take everybody in my family to solve a puzzle or to get from point A to point B. I did really develop a interest in how the brain tells time later in graduate school because I realized in, in many ways the brain is a time machine and I guess we'll, we'll approach this but in many ways the most important function of the brain is to use the past to predict the future and very little is, was known and still is known about how the brain implements clocks and tells time. One of the first things you talk about in the book is your observation that the word time 
is the most commonly used word in the English language. I thought that was, that was really astounding. Uh, and then you gave a whole bunch of examples, saving time, killing time, serving time, keeping time, tracking time, buying time, asking for time, and then types of time, good time, bedtime, free time, and you say, you say that your favorite time is lunchtime. Um, <laughs> so. I don't know if you share that point of view, but, but it is one of my favorite times, absolutely. And this is both interesting and makes the conversation complicated, right? Because the word time is the most common noun in the English language. And the reason for that is really that it means many things. So this is one of the reasons that it's so hard to define time is there's not one time. There's many types of time. And we have to be careful in our conversations, particularly in scientific conversations. And I, I hope I was able to convey that in the book that it's important to define which time we uh, are referring to in any given conversation. I think that you did. And, and if I uh, can say that I'm your student, I th I th I've, we've been really look, looking at your book and, and trying to understand, you know, the different types. And you talk about uh, remembering the past to predict, to predict the future. You talk about detecting small intervals of time as in music or sports. I mean, if you're trying to track the ball and catch it at the right time when it hits your glove. The long term times and seasonal planting and seasonal changes. And then also uh, uh, the sense of time passing, whether it's long or short or, or you know, distorted in some way. Uh, and then time travel, which you point out is not, uh, it's a pretty modern, not just invention, because it, obviously it hasn't been invented, but the concept was invented in modern times, which is really interesting. There, there are instances in the Talmud that talk about um, Moses going back to, uh, to Adam or hmm. King David going back to Moses, but it's not, it's, it's almost described not so much as time travel, but that time is sort of arbitrary. So it is almost like an eternalism kind of point of view. Interesting. And in those in those stories, do they go back and return? Do they interact, or do they sort of view from a distance what's happening? I'm not familiar with that story. That's very interesting. Yeah, there's a story of uh, of Rabbi Akiva uh, going back to Moses and and uh, being amazed. Uh, no, it's the other way around. Moses going forward in time. And, and looking at Talmudic learning and say that this is what came of the law, you know, that it's going to be, you know, expounded upon and argued about. Wow, that's, and he, and he felt kind of lost, actually. <laughs> so that's, there's kind of some humor in it as well. That's, that's fascinating. I should look into that. But the general point is that, yes, now it's hard to turn our TVs on or go to the movie and where there's not some episode of Star Trek or movie that, in which it's implicit that time travel exists in which somebody's going forward in time and returning or going back in time and coming back to their quote present day and it's important to say time travel in a, in a, in a very um, basic or trivial sense is you know if you freeze yourself or if you go into some sort of stasis you're time traveling to the future but what we're talking about is true time travel in which you jump to a different moment in your timeline backwards or forwards and are able to return and this although it's so common nowadays and we sort of take it for granted it only really started with hg wells's the time machine in the late 1800s and it is interesting that you know shakespeare who had basically touched upon every topic there is and we're still redoing many of the plot lines that he developed that that didn't really 
come up in any it was like it was such a foreign concept so absurd that we could travel in time and go back that it wasn't even acceptable in fiction yeah i think they didn't know what they were missing because i think many of us uh, feel that in science fiction the time travel stories are the most fascinating and most engaging i i agree and i have an inherent fascination with those but you you made this point so when we're talking about the philosophy of time we often distinguish between two sort of philosophical notions. One is presentism, in which only the present is real, and the other eternalism that you just referred to, in which in the past, present, and future are in some sense equally real. We just happen to be in the present, so it feels more real, but the past, present, and future, there's other stewards, if you will, if there's other deans, if you will, that are in those moments in their appropriate present. So it's sort of as now is to time as here is to space. So it's just one moment in time or one point in space, but the other moments in time or space are equally real. And time travel implicitly assumes an internalist stance because under presentism, you can't even discuss the possibility of time travel because only the present is real. So it doesn't make sense to try to ask, can I go back to the past? or to the future that doesn't yet exist, because they don't exist. So we become very comfortable with the notion, the eternalist notion of, of the view of time, in part because of the commonality of time travel stories in fiction. And also modern physics, uh, as you point out in your book, is, seems to be much more tending to the eternalist view than the presentist view. Absolutely. Whereas I think in, in religion, which you don't get into in your book, uh, I think of Eastern religions as being more presentist, you know, only the now exists. And Western religion maybe is more eternalist in the sense that, you know, God has the uh, perspective where he, everything's laid out and, and there's no time. God is outside of time. So really this topic dovetails with so many different subjects. And that's, I think, part of why it's so fascinating. So that leads to the, the next question was, is the flow of time real or an illusion? If you, if you accept the eternalist viewpoint that it's all laid out and we're just arbitrarily choosing the now point, then the flow of time itself could be an illusion because what would it mean to flow in something that's already established in a sense? So this is a deep question and that really is at the intersection of the neuroscience and physics, I think. And, and the question is, is, can one inform the other? So under the eternalist view, we might use the word illusion referring to the flow of time. You and I and all of us have this very strong sense, this strong subjective feeling that the past no longer exists, that I missed the opportunity to do something yesterday and that option is no longer there because the past is no longer there. So we're flowing through time and under eternalism that might be interpreted as illusion, although the word illusion gets gets thrown around a lot and, and tends to mean different things. But I would argue, so as you mentioned, the physics of time, mostly from special relativity and general relativity, I think supports the interpretation of eternalism, that the past, present, future are equally real. But it's important to be very clear here. There's zero empirical evidence that that interpretation is correct. And it's not necessarily the case that um, special relativity and general relativity are incompatible with the presentist view. It's just that I think it's sort of 
fosters the eternalist um, interpretation. So then the question from neuroscience that I would put forth is that our subjective experiences are not there by coincidence. Our subjective experiences are there because they were evolutionarily adaptive. We feel pain not because of some coincidence of, of biology, but because it's incredibly adaptive to feel pain. We wouldn't be, be successful as we are if we didn't have that subjective experience. Similarly, our subjective experience of the passage of time, I would argue, evolved precisely because it does reflect reality. It does reflect the fact that the past is no longer real and the future is not yet real. So in the lack of any empirical evidence from physics, I would argue that we should take very seriously what our subjective experiences are telling us about the world because we had, we evolved to succeed in that world. And it wouldn't be adaptive to have experiences that didn't reflect reality. Yeah, and I think this speaks to, uh, you were saying the word illusion illusion has the connotation of not being real, almost like a ma magician's trick. Uh, but then the other use of the word of illusion in, in neuroscience, it sounds like, is that the brain has to kind of create a representation of reality that more or less corresponds to the external world, but is very imperfect and leaves a lot of things out. And if, for instance, the visual spectrum is only a tiny spectrum of the electromagnetism. Um, whether, there's no actual colors in the world, but there are, there are wavelengths. So this, the subjective feeling of the experience may not be out there, but the information about it is, you know, red is a longer wavelength than blue and things, things of, like, of that sort. But there's so much more to reality than we can actually perceive, even on a physical level. I'm not even talking about metaphysical. I, yeah, that's a great point. So I think when a neuroscientist says, uses the word illusion, they do mean something very different from what philosophers or physicists might mean in this context. So we talk about perceptual illusions where we have a misinterpretation of reality, whether it's the color of the gold and blue dress that was on Instagram a couple of years ago, or just um, visual illusions where you perceive something as concave, but it's convex and so forth, where the brain misinterprets something about reality. Because in, in some sense, everything the brain does is a creation or a construct of the external world. So the question in time, regarding time, is the flow of time, is the sense that the past is no longer real and the future is not yet real, a construct? Of course it is, because everything the brain does is ultimately a construct. But is it a construct that reflects the physical reality or not? Is it an illusion in a much deeper sense and that doesn't exist in physics? Or is it just an approximation of something that is happening in the physical world? You, you wrote, the brain cuts, pauses, and pastes the reel of reality before feeding the mind a convenient narrative of the events unfolding in the world around us. Yet, unless we stop to think about it, we are left with the impression that our conscious experiences reflect an instantaneous play-by-play -play account of reality. It's an example of your, your beautiful writing, I think there is a kind of, uh, I think the term is naive realism, that I think most of us assume that what we're experiencing is the world, as opposed to being filtered. And um, as a psychologist, you know, one of my tasks is to help people recognize that they have these filters, and that the way they're perceiving other people, especially, is is not 
the objective person, it's their experience of the person. Absolutely. And it, it's such a strong and powerful experience that we just assume that we're experiencing the flow of the events around us in real time, continuously and linearly, because that's just the way consciousness imposes the narrative of the external world. Now, of course, the brain is continuously and continuously and more or less linearly processing that information, but it only gets sent into consciousness sort of in bursts and fits. And, and there's many examples of this. So I use the example, the bat was broken or the bat was hungry. So you can only understand what the word bat means once the second word comes in. So if it's bat the animal or bat the, of a baseball. As I speak, it feels like you're processing each syllable, each word um, in a continuous linear fashion. But of course you're not. You, you don't perceive each syllable I'm stating. You just wait for an appropriate point in my phrasal output in my speech to make sense of what I'm saying. Another example is uh, she has a stake in the company or she has a stake on the grill. So the word stake, you don't know which of the two different meanings of that homophone uh, I'm using until the second part of that phrase. So we're continuously processing speech, but we're only understanding it at the conscious level in fits and bursts when the brain decides to feed our conscious mind something, a reasonable interpretation of the external world. And it also points to the present as experienced as having thickness. It's not instantaneous. It has to have some, at least short duration in order to hear that sentence. You have to keep in, in short-term memory, very short-term memory, you know, the, the first word. And then the first word is not really even perceived fully until, or it, maybe it's overridden when you hear the second word. Absolutely. And I've also another example is uh, you're at a cocktail party and you, you hear your name spoken and you, you're, you've kind of finished your sentence with the first one, and then you realize you heard your name. Like it could be a few seconds later. Yeah, so you sort of retroactively pull that information back up and respond as appropriate. And I think when we are processing that information, it does seem linearly that it's happening in, in a continuous flow, but it is um, sort of diced and chopped up to fit the appropriate context. And what you were referring to as this thickness, sometimes we use the term temporal window of integration. What's important there is that it's variable. So depending on what you're doing, your temporal integration, if I'm speaking a very long sentence, your temporal integration in which something is delivered in conscious might be thicker, to use your word, or thinner. If somebody says, just fire, that, that you don't want to wait too long. You want to have a very quick reaction to that, right? So you want that to have a rapid interpretation. But if I'm speaking, I was out camping and the fire was beautiful that evening, you, you know, then you have a thicker. So what's fascinating is that this is not in a computer. The computer is gathering information. It also has a thickness, right? So the recording equipment you're reading, you're using right now has a temporal thickness, the sampling rate, but that it's recording the information but it is constant. So this brain seems to have, at least at the conscious level, a variable temporal thickness or a sampling rate that can sort of differ depending on the context. It seems to me that 
in order to perceive time, I, maybe this is a little bit of a synonym, but you, the brain has to also perceive sequence. That sort of sequence comes before time. One of the, I guess, famous aphorisms in neuroscience is that neurons that fire together wire together, but actually they're not firing together, they're firing, at, firing in quick succession. It seems to me that's, that's maybe even more important than whether it's absolutely simultaneous. Yeah, that's an uh, important point as well. And sometimes people do confuse this. So they talk about temporal order and timing. And sometimes they don't carefully determine if they mean which one came first, independent of the interval between them, or actually the timing. So here's an example I use in speech. So they gave her cat food or they gave her cat food. So the temporal order of all those words is the same, but hopefully I was able to convey the differential meaning of those words based on the pause in my speech. In some cases, the most important thing is indeed temporal order, but in other instances, and particularly in music, right, you have the order of the notes. Yeah, that's sort of important, but without the proper timing, it's still not music. So you need to pay attention to the interval between the events that you're marking the order of. Now, in the case of neurons, as you just pointed out, we do sort of one of the most fundamental principles, neuroscientific principles, is probably precisely that one that's referred to as Hebbian plasticity or associative plasticity, that neurons that fire together, wire together. And implicit in that is fire together, again, has a temporal thickness. And so it's not necessarily perfect synchrony, what synchrony, what resolution of that synchrony. But the order is absolutely critical as well. So as a reminder, our brains are built of neurons and a presynaptic neuron sends information to a postsynaptic neuron. And if the presynaptic neuron fires before the postsynaptic neuron, the sender fires before the receiver, then that synapse, that connection might be strengthened. But if the sender fires after the receiver, then that synaptic connection might be weakened. So it's a sort of a f elaboration of this notion of neurons that fire together, wire together. And it does seem that there's a bias for uh, shorter intervals than longer. And just to, by way of example, uh, in music, if there's a solo instrument playing a duet with itself, like for instance, a violin with double stops, or even a, even a wind instrument, you might have a bass line where you play a bass, the bass line note for a quarter note, and then you continue with the melody and the higher note. And so the, the bass line note is, is occurring much slower. And the, mm. the mind hears the melody line easily because it's continuous, closer to continuous. But the bass line is just a, a bass note, and then at the beginning of the next measure, another bass note, and at the beginning of the measure, the next bass note. And because they're separated, in terms of frequency, the, the brain picks up, picks up on it, but it has to have some other connection, you know, even though it's a longer interval. Yeah, that's very interesting. And in music, we have this ability to sort of simultaneously detect, as you just mentioned, sort of if you have two instruments with slightly different, that are on different beats, we tend to group those. We, we use the temporal information as well as the frequency information to group those two different, maybe to group those two different instruments into a single one. 
so yeah, we always use these temporal cues and frequency cues to make sense of the world, world and, and music in particular. I think a lot of that is learned and as a result of experience. What's interesting, right, one of the principles of the, how the brain tells time is the brain doesn't have a single clock. The brain has many clocks. And that limits, that means we can tell time in, on some scales, like in music, much better than on other scales or in different ways than on other scales. So in music, we can speed it up or slow it down to a degree, right? You can go from a different tempos, like a very slow tempo, a grave, or um, a very fast allegro. But after some point, if you slow music down too much, it's no longer music. <laughs> They're just these notes hanging in the air that don't we can't complete, make into a pattern. So the brain's timing mechanisms are really specialized, sophisticated timing mechanisms are really specialized for this time scale of around a second in which we talk and, and, and music, because after that, it's no longer music or speech. It's interesting to think about different creatures, maybe extraterrestrial creatures operating on a completely different time scale. We would probably have a lot of trouble communicating with them, I think. That's a good point. Yeah, I think that's the hardware. Okay, I mean, we don't have to go to extraterrestrial, right? We can say computers just operate on such a fast time scale that as far as we're concerned, they seem to be doing something instantaneous um, because their hardware is such that their sampling rate is vastly faster than ours. So whether it's creatures or potential aliens, I think that's absolutely true. If, there, if a computer was trying to communicate with us at its own speed, you know, yeah, it would be gibberish to us. Gibberish to us. It has to be slowed down. And yeah, I think that's true, a likely factor in any sort of alien communication. Or, or maybe even just the common house fly. I remember watching a video of, of an explosion and seeing how quick, slowly or quickly animals react. And there was a snail that didn't react at all. <laughs> there was a pigeon, <laughs> pigeon that managed to get away just in time of the explosion and there was a fly that had like left longer, you know, <laughs> instantly as if the reaction yeah. time was so amazing. I think there's a lot of differences in animals reaction times and speed and that's in part due to the size of the animal and whether it's warm blooded and the degree of myelination of the axons and so forth. But I would say that overall all animals operate in the same time scale in the sense that neurons, the sampling time of neurons is around a kilohertz because an action potential takes one millisecond around. And that's true whether you're a fly, a pigeon, or a human. So the fundamental sampling rate of the nervous system, I would say for the most part, is fairly consistent. But of course, different animals, depending on the complexity, whether it's a reflex, and so forth can absolutely have different reaction times. Uh, let's shift now to we're talking about internal clocks. I think you mentioned this in your book that uh, even single cells have uh, some kind of internal clock. And you mentioned cyanobacteria, which I guess are the first life forms, one of the first life forms on Earth that were responsible for creating oxygen in, in the atmosphere. And, and you point out that uh, damage from UV rays can, of course, only occur when the sun is out. So as a result, uh, the bacteria divide at night. And the question is, how do they know 
And is it because they have a light detector uh, that's telling them, or is it because there's a, a circadian rhythm that they have? And I think that was pretty much proven by putting them in the dark and seeing that they still have a rhythm. Yes. Yeah, so the circadian clock, so we were just talking that the brain has many types of clocks. So the clocks we were talking about for, for music, um, obviously you need a brain for that. Cyanobacteria are not going to have any sensory mechanism capable of, of distinguishing the timing between a half note and a quarter note. So, so we have many clocks. On this other extreme that we're going into now is the circadian clock, which is really universal throughout the animal and plant kingdoms. So most even single cell organisms and plants can tell time on the scale of hours and days. And it seems that sort of the primordial clock in evolution was indeed this one that evolved um, in cyanobacteria. And the driving force of that, at least according to one theory, that's somewhat supported by the experimental evidence, is that it was not to predict when to maybe do photosynthesis or prepare for photosynthesis, but prepare for cell division because light is, of course, highly mutagenic. UV light is highly mutagenic. That's why we wear our sunscreen when we go to the beach. And we have skin to protect us. But bacteria are incredibly vulnerable to UV radiation because they have no organ to protect them from uh, UV radiation. So it seems that they had a clock to predict when nighttime was coming and to engage all the cellular machinery to start that process as quickly and efficiently as possible. I think it's fascinating, a comparison here between biology and society and technology. So many people argue that sort of the driving force of the industrial revolution was, say, the steam engine. Other people argue that it was really cheap clocks, the ability to build clocks that allowed people to get to the factories at the same time because you need to have a production line. Clocks allowed having clocks that were universally available to the large part of the population allowed you to synchronize everything that needed to be synchronized to have industrial production lines. But the original production line was, of course, biology cell division, photosynthesis, and so forth. So I think biology addressed that problem of requiring a clock to synchronize the many events that had to take place to engage a sequence of steps, in this case biochemistry, by uh, the evolution of the circadian clock. You know, if I, could, if I could just add to that, you need not only a clock, but a reliable clock. Uh, I remember uh, going to a, an exhibit of Leonardo da Vinci, in Vinci, of all his um, uh, inventions, and one of them was a, some kind of conical gear that allowed the uh, wind-up clock or watch to keep the same exact interval as the spring was wearing down. It changed the gear hmm. ratio, and that was, uh, I guess, maybe the first time that uh, something had been invented to keep a steady, steady time. And the yeah, so that's those fascinating humans have been striving to make better and better clocks since the dawn of man from from sundials to water clocks to the early pendulum clocks or at least i don't know if the vinci had much to do i think maybe the spring clocks you're mentioning but then eventually with galileo with the pendulum clocks and huygens that really brought that technology forward until today 
we have these absurdly accurate uh, atomic clocks that allow us to measure time, the passage of time, better than anything else. We as humans can measure time better than weight or mass or distance and so forth. And it's actually fascinating that the distance and according to the national standards or international standards of measurements, distance is actually measured by how far light travels in a specific amount of time. So even space now is defined by the use of atomic clocks. So space is defined by time and time is defined by, by space in a way. It's, it's so circular, but uh, I, I, to my mind, the only way that time, you can understand time is, is through change and change means movement and movement is, means space. So it's like you keep going round and round in a circle. That's a great and deep point. I think the most intuitive definition of time is really, is indeed to relate it to change. And that's all a clock is, right? All clocks, whether it's a pendulum clock or a quartz crystal clock or a atomic clock, is just quantifying change in some incredibly reproducible and consistent pattern that allows us to make a metric. So in the case of atomic clocks, those clocks are based on the electromagnetic vib um, vibrations of cesium atoms, which in a sense are changing their location sort of in a sense space but um, just oscillation frequencies so so it's this ability to detect change in ever more precise and consistent uh, ways and you point out in your book that humans even though our brains are probably more geared to the short intervals we're not so accurate with it you mentioned that musicians can estimate the length of a minute better than the average person and that a percussionist even better than the average musician. <laughs> so it is possible to get better at it. And I know I always would assume that uh, the way that's done by a musician is that the counting of beats, that each beat is closer and closer to uniform and also closer and closer to, to the exact amount of time. And I've heard the conductors are very good at, they, they can, without even looking at, at a uh, metronome, they can say, okay, we're going to do this at 120 beats per minute. And they're pretty close. Yeah, I believe that. I believe that. I think conductors and percussionists are probably the most accurate there. And and I would just qualify, just to be clear, I think the data is, is that musicians are better on the timescale of seconds. We actually don't know if they're superior at the timescale of a minute. Um, but at the timescale of seconds, they're definitely superior. And um, how they do that is a question we don't quite understand at the neural level, but we do know enough now, I believe, to say that the way we tell time, whether it's you, me, or a musician, or a conductor, on this scale of seconds is through a process that's not involving an oscillator, like a pendulum swinging back and forth, or neurons that are just going up and down, up and down, but what we would call neural dynamics. So you have many, many neurons, and these neurons are changing their patterns of activity. So the brain's clocks on this time of scale really don't resemble our man-made clocks in any clear or intuitive fashion. It's more like dominoes falling. So just like if you tap one domino, you'll trigger this whole, quote, domino effect in which you could potentially use that to tell time. 
if you have 100 dominoes, maybe it takes 100 dominoes, each one a second to fall. So at the end of the uh, row, 100 seconds has elapsed. So similarly, you can imagine neurons. One neuron, neuron A activating B, activating C, forming these patterns that unfold in time that can also be used to tell time. And then there's also tricks to use, like uh, singing uh, Mary Had a Little Lamb while you're brushing your teeth to make sure that it's a certain amount of time or, or hand washing in the COVID era. <laughs> yeah. um, so that's another, another option. We were kind of heading in the direction of talking about distortions and the perception of time. Uh, a watch pot never boils, time flies when you're having fun, life-threatening events seem to occur in slow motion. So it does seem to, that for whatever reason, the maybe there's a survival value in this, uh, that the distortion actually has a purpose in a sense. I mean, if, if it's a life-threatening situation, it'd be really helpful to be able to analyze what happens after the fact if you survive. <laughs> you know, if you don't, then, that, then there's no big deal. But <laughs> It's good, good to remember what almost killed you. Absolutely. I think that's another important and un, unknown uh, and we don't really know the answer to that question, but it is such a universal uh, shared phenomenon that I agree, totally agree with you that it should be evolutionarily adaptive. One can, as you just imagined, just mentioned, it might allow us to improve our memory of the event. So it's sort of like this flashbulb memory of what exactly happened. It's sort of maybe allowing you to play it in, uh, back in slow motion to remember some of the details. But on the other hand, there's this more benign aspect of the subjectivity or relativity of time in which when you're bored, time seems to be going by very slowly, subjectively. It seems that you believe uh, maybe five minutes has passed, but then you look at the clock and it's, oh, wow, it's only one minute has passed as I'm waiting to, to, for the dentist to finish this procedure. And then on the other hand, when we're strongly engaged in a activity that we like or we enjoy, time seems to fly by. So arguably, one might speculate that things that are enjoyable are adaptive and increase our chances of survival or increase our chances of success in the future. So by making things that are adaptive and productive more enjoyable in the sense that time seems to fly by, that increases the likelihood we will engage in those events, whereas just boredom is something that we generally don't associate with being rewarding or fun, and that might sway our behaviors away from those events. So it's possible that Mother Nature sculpted our behaviors by making some events, the productive events, enjoyable in terms of um, passing by very quickly and non-adaptive events um, less uh, less so by making them time slow down. And then you have the adaptive aspects of boredom as being a, a driver for um, capitalism as in the in the uh, tech field, you know, not being satisfied with a one second pause. <laughs> we want it to be a half a second pause. Yeah, that's the scary part, isn't it? Is that our the the rate we become accustomed or habituated into shorter and shorter intervals, waiting shorter and shorter intervals for some sort of stimulation or reward. It's like if you look at the pace of TV conversation or the rate of scenes changing on the TV, 
from 40, 50 years ago, the rate of change has significantly accelerated, apparently to maintain our attention, to keep those eyeballs glued to whatever media we're looking at. And yeah, this is a, an interesting question that has a lot of implications for topics sort of covered in my first book about brain bugs and how to exploit the brain's um, biases and glitches and flaws. Yeah. Kind of the opposite of uh, my friend's experience uh, in the Peace Corps in India in the 1960s when he landed he saw there was a janitor with a broom in his hand just watching the plane, and, and he already felt the time was slowing down. I mean, this is maybe a stereotype of Indian culture, but, you know, this sort of like time, this time, you know, you ask when, when, when's the bus coming? Oh, sometime tomorrow. You know, <laughs> There's a sense of, of tolerance for waiting and, and not necessarily doing anything, but just watching and being, just being. Absolutely. And, and I think part of that is just the shift over the decades. And there's a wonderful book on that called The Geography of Time, that you may or may not be familiar with, that describes precisely these types of experiments in different cultures. And I think we should acknowledge that not only the cultural differences, but just the sort of zeitgeist, sort of the current changes in, over the past decades in terms of how long we're willing to wait. And on one hand, yeah, get, get, getting getting information sooner, getting or finishing your objectives sooner is valuable. But on the other hand, I think the brain requires time to absorb information, to burn that information into our neural circuits so that it can be retained and used in productive ways. So I think there is a trade-off between retention of information and the speed with which we're exposed to it. Well, I'm going to ask you for this last segment to do a little bit of time travel yourself in the sense that I'd like to hear a little bit about your serious researcher side. Maybe maybe one of the methods that you use, uh, maybe optogenetics or computer simulations, but to describe uh, you know, how, the, how that works, what the applications are, and in the future, what possible applications this information might have. Now, of course, this field is really very much in its infancy. But I, I would imagine there's already some sense of, of application and, and kind of useful, whether it's a therapeutic thing or, or something else. Well, I'll certainly give you some flavor of what the scientific problems we address. I, I want to warn you that it's possible that my research is totally useless <laughs> without <laughs> applications. No, I'm, I'm partially kidding. But um, I think at some stage. It's not like we're specifically trying to cure a disease, which obviously has uh, clear and valuable applications to society, but just understanding the brain, the fundamental brain function, I think is, is in really, in many ways, the goal. And that ultimately gives us the ability to better understand ourselves and indeed understand both pathological and normal conditions. But I, I think we have to, at some point, embrace the notion that understanding the brain is a fundamental goal in order for humans to know how we work, to know ourselves, of self-knowledge, really. And that will always have applications, even if they're, they're not immediately obvious. As you know, a lot of basic research, the applications emerge in time in totally unpredictable ways. But the research we do asks the, the sort of mechanistic question of how to perform computations 
one computation being how to tell time using neurons. We know that we can build clocks with, with human devices like a pendulum or a quartz crystal, but how does the brain do that? And what we've learned over the past decades is the brain doesn't have one way to tell time. It has many ways to tell time. I think in, in my view and in my lab, one of the most sophisticated forms of timing and temporal processing is due to what we call neural population clocks. So my lab and other labs have shown that whether you're studying neural circuits, cortical circuits in vitro, so you study those in a dish, or in vivo in an animal that's trained to do, say a mouse that's trained to do a timing task. So maybe it's going to receive a reward in one second or in two seconds. And we can record from the neurons in the brain and sort of read out the clock, if you will. We know that some neurons go on first and then other neurons go on second and then neurons go on third. So you have these patterns, these trajectories, we call them a neural trajectory, in which you have these different patterns of, of neural activity evolving in time. And those patterns can be apparently played more slowly or quickly to sort of speed up if you need to do something quickly or to slow down the trajectory if you need to do something slowly. So our, our research focuses on how to generate those patterns, to observe them is one thing, but to how the brain wires them, puts them together is, is something that we focus on at the, at the neural level. And to do that, we focus on, we use neural, artificial neural networks, a field called neural computation, and to build these clocks from neurons. It's a, it's a field that allows us to sort of emulate how the brain is doing it and, and generate predictions that we can then test experimentally. Can you also say a bit about optogenetics? So optogenetics is, over the past uh, 15 years, is a technique that's used increasingly universally throughout neuroscience, independent of whether you're, say, interested in timing or memory. And, and optogenetics is a fascinating example of what we were just talking about in terms of applied science. So the field of optogenetics, what happens is um, they extracted proteins from a, I'm sorry, it's an algae, I think it's a type of algae that responds to light and opens channels and allows sodium to go in. So it activates, if it's in neurons, it can activate neurons. So you can get, you can borrow or copy this protein from this algae and put it in neurons. And those neurons will now respond to light. So if you want to understand, say, what controls movement to if your right hand, if you put some of this protein called channel rhodopsin in in some group of neurons and you activate those neurons and somebody moves their right hand, then you know that those neurons are causally involved in moving the right hand. And when they were studying these algae, the, the algae, nobody was thinking of an application, but that very basic fundamental biological question revolutionized the field of neuroscience and, and is slowly revolutionizing the potential treatments for some sort of um, neurological disorders. Well, that hasn't happened yet, but but it's in the cards in the future. So we and others use optogenetics as just a technique to stimulate neurons um, and control the activity patterns that we're studying. 
Yeah, I, I hope I'm remembering this correctly, but I think there was some use of optogenetics to make a remote-controlled rat that would explore a, a bombed building and find survivors that way, and, and it would have a camera on it, and it would uh, you could see where it's going, and then you'd have uh, implanted um, uh, light-sensitive uh, neurons, and you could... Uh, make it basically steer it you know make it go right make it go left i, I don't know if this was something that was proposed or it's actually i think it's not hasn't happened yet but it was it's theoretically possible though i think it, that type of thing is theoretically possible that's how i would leave that statement it opens the door for a lot of those types of applications but probably more importantly for you know even today parkinson's disease is treated with something called deep brain stimulation, where you have to put electrodes in the brain. And it's possible that in the future, optogenetic techniques could be used to treat or to activate neurons that are hypoactive uh, in some situations. But these applied applications in the field of medicine are have not borne out yet, but it takes time. But at the practical level, in terms of performing the research, they, they have revolutionized our scientists' ability to um, study the brain. It's probably entered into the science fiction genre in a very dark way, I would think. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. So you've mentioned, uh, I guess, in vivo, in vitro, uh, electrophysiology. You didn't use that term, but that's what you described. And uh, computer simulations and uh, human psychophysics. So what's, what's that? So human psychophysics is just the study of human sensory processing. So say your ability to perceive color or how the degree of precision you can to discriminate different shades of green, for example. But in the context of time, could be the ability to discriminate different note durations. So this allows us to, for example, show that musicians, we can give them different tones of different, um, of 100 milliseconds, 110 milliseconds, 120 milliseconds, or ask them to reproduce different temporal patterns. And this by getting, in, in one of our recent papers, we studied musicians versus non-musicians, and indeed further confirmed that the ability of musicians to tap out a Morse code pattern was with the Morse code pattern, they could say the word time. They were actually tapping out in Morse code the word time versus the non-musicians was actually very similar. So both of those groups could do it very similarly in terms of the accuracy of the taps. But when the musicians and the non-musicians were asked to do that faster, say twice as fast or twice as slow, the musicians performed um, significantly better. So the musical training allowed that group to scale time better, to sort of speed it up or slow it down. So if I ask you to tie your shoe quickly or tie your shoe slowly, you can do that, but it becomes difficult if, if it's uh, increased or decreased in too much uh, by a large factor. So musicians um, were able to do that task better. And that's just one example of, of using human psychophysics to study how the brain tells time. Right, and that's a kind of practice effect that a musician might not be better at the at first, but can learn it faster. So there's the, absolutely the, le the learning capacity is is uh, been has been honed through uh, through experience. Yes, through the process of being a musician. Yeah. So I'm I'm, I'm just curious. This is a general question about um, neuroscience. If uh, if it let's say in a year's time, by um, a metaphor, 
that in a year's time, at the end of the year, you would know everything there is to know about the brain. Everything. Where are we now in terms of the, the time starting uh, January 1st? How, how far along are we? I know that it's impossible to say, but I, it's really more of a intuition or, or an attitude about your field. I, I'll tell you my answer after you tell me yours. You want me to start, Stuart? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I think, I think the understanding everything there is known to known about the brain. That was how you posed the question. So that includes consciousness. So that includes how a group of neurons, how matter that um, composes the neurons in our brain is able to feel pain or pleasure, to laugh or to love, how it's able to be ticklish, if you will, um, right? So have any experience whatsoever, any subjective experience whatsoever. And I, I think we're really quite far from that. So perhaps, perhaps a hundred years um, from truly understanding everything about the brain, and if not more, and I do wonder if the brain is actually capable of understanding itself. So, you know, neuroscience holds one unique distinction among all scientific fields, and that's, it's the only field in which the thing being studied is doing the studying. And so it's really a possibility that it might be an unattainable uh, task. I don't think it is, but I think we have to take that possibility seriously. So I do think to understand everything there is to know of the brain, that's in the very distant future. Now, to make significant breakthroughs and cure Alzheimer's disease, maybe address the fundamental problems of schizophrenia, I think those are in the in this time scale of decades, uh, in my opinion. And yours, what's your opinion? Well, the way I phrased the question, so in a year's time, we'd know everything. I guess my bias is that we're in like a, the first few minutes of the year. <laughs> okay. So um, I, I, I guess I just have a, a sense that there's just the, the, the scale of the task, I think, is absolutely enormous. So you're putting a, a centuries, even a beyond centuries. So, so the math there would work out. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Uh, and this, you know, that's just an intuition. It's just a, kind of an attitude. I, there's, no, there's no way to really justify that, <laughs> that opinion. Fair enough. But uh, I think that just the level of complexity is so incredible. And uh, this layers and layers of complexity. I, I did a calculation for the number of uh, synapses, possible synapses, and I, think came, I came up with like 10 to the 511th power or something like that, if, assuming, assuming each neuron has uh, between 1,000 and 10,000 connections and there are 300 mm -hmm. billion neurons. And, you know, and that number is so big, you could scale up from a single subatomic particle to the whole universe and do that process twice <laughs> to get to that kind of number. So, yeah. you know, just from that point, just number of connections alone is just uh, just so amazing. And, and one thing that, that you mentioned in your book is that a neuron is a neuron. I mean, whether it's a mouse neuron or, or human neuron, it's it's not the neuron that's different. It's all the connections. And uh, as far as we know, which is also kind of fascinating. So, you know, if we're playing with Legos, they're all, all Legos, but, you know, the Legos can be scaled up to make an amazing... Uh, uh, edifice or just something very simple absolutely yeah it's a and it's an emergent property right it's that it's hard to predict what you can ultimately do with the legos or with the computer chips is is perhaps a more appropriate example well dean i think uh, that's all the time we have for today so dean buonomano a neuroscientist at ucla
since 1998, a leading researcher in the neuroscience of time and the author of Your Brain is a Time Machine, the Neuroscience and Physics of Time. So thank you so much for coming on to Delving In. It was a very stimulating conversation. Thank you, Stuart. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.